Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. This is the Civil Engineering Podcast, the show for civil engineers who want to move to the next level in their career and professional skills. And I'm Chris Knutson, your host for today's episode. Trust this finds you doing well wherever you are, whatever civil engineering project you're working on or involved with at the moment. Well, in this episode, I'm speaking with Ronan Collins, an accomplished structural engineer who moved into the evolving field of building information management a little over a decade ago and is now the managing director of IntelliBuild out of Hong Kong. And that's actually for us the first... Asia-based interview that we've been able to do, and I was very appreciative that uh, Ronan was able to get on the uh, phone with me and to put this episode together. I know that you're really going to find a lot of useful information in here, even if you're new to BIM or you've been working with it for a while or you're a firm owner or a partner, there's going to be something in this episode that has a little bit for each of you. So we quickly move from BIM 101 or the introductory level items right into 4D and 5D applications of BIM. Didn't even know they existed. I do now. And if you listen to the episode, you're going to as well. And then we also get into the importance in lifecycle costing and asset management for the client and the owner-operator, as well as the importance for civil engineers to take an active role in learning about how BIM can be applied to solve a client's needs and the importance of not delegating it 100% to outsourcing, and especially for our American and North American listeners who might be interested in it from a uh, liability standpoint with the professional engineering stamping. So this is a really useful and quite important episode. If you're interested and you're going to be working around BIM or you want to learn more about it, definitely listen through the entire episode. And we've linked up a number of sites where you can go to find BIM learning resources. These came from uh, Ronan and his staff. So I'm very appreciative to them for passing this information along to us. But you can go to those learning resources and you can find out more that you can put into uh, your queue for self-learning. And all the links are going to be in the show notes for the episode, as well as a number of other links for how you can get in touch with Ronan and his team. And you can go to civilengineeringpodcast.com. Just look for BIM, do a search for BIM, and you'll you'll pop up on the uh, episode show notes. But before we dive into the main segment of the show, I want to take a moment and recognize our sponsor for today, PPI. So if you're thinking about taking the civil FE or PE exam, I recommend that you check out PPI. They're the leader in civil engineering exam prep. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Just use promo code CIVIL at pptopass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com. And use promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. And I also want to remind you that the Engineering Career Summit 2016 will be 12 through 14 May in New Orleans. Now, if you don't know what the Engineering Career Summit is, well, you can go check it out at engineeringevent.com. And it's the only event designed from the ground up to transform engineers from educated technical professionals into effective communicators, powerful networkers, and dynamic leaders. This event is designed with one purpose in mind. That's to provide you with actionable steps you can take to move your career and life to a completely new level past the blocks, the hurdles, whatever challenges you're facing. It's not a professional organization trade show, and it's not a two-day PDH cram session. This is an opportunity for you to connect with other motivated engineers just like you and to hear from successful engineers and leaders on topics like leadership, networking and communications, business development, and a whole lot more. And there's a lot of socializing afterwards 
it's a great opportunity for you to link up with some amazing engineers, amazing leaders, and have a great time in New Orleans. So the tickets are on sale now. Head over to engineeringevent.com. Reserve yours today. All right, and now it's time to jump into today's civil engineering conversation with structural engineer and BIM expert, Ronan Collins. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for this week's Civil Engineering Conversation, where we talk with a civil engineering professional who's had success in their field or is striving towards a specific goal or needs some advice and encouragement. But today's guest, Ronan Collins, needs no encouragement. He is an expert and very experienced in building information modeling as a project manager and specializes in the production of detailed and accurate BIM models for the purpose of design and construction coordination. By combining his structural engineering knowledge and skills, leadership, management talents, and tried and tested BIM processes, Ronan has developed a specialized and focused construction sector consultancy business, IntelliBuild, and they're recognized as international industry leaders for BIM services, and they're based out of Hong Kong. Ronan manages a team of experienced construction professionals, engineers, 3D CAD modeling, and virtual construction specialists, and he's responsible for planning and implementing the BIM projects in direct collaboration with the client, consultants, and contractors. As a structural engineer, he completed the design and supervision of several commercial infrastructure and educational projects. His experience includes civil, structural, and geotechnical engineering design, and is a resident engineer responsible for the quality supervision of projects. He has assisted contractors with developing construction method statements and temporary works designs. His experience at IntelliBuild includes the management of the production of BIM models for architecture, structure, and electrical and mechanical, or ENM, or MEP, for those of us back in the U.S., and the facilitation of the implementation of BIM processes. Ronan, I'm really excited to have you on the show. It's taken us a while to get the schedule, and I'm, I'm glad that we were able to do so. So thanks for joining me today. It's my pleasure, Chris. It's good to get a chance to talk to you and go through some of the questions you and your uh, listeners have got. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to jump right into it because we do have quite a bit of material here to cover, and it's certainly as we unpack what BIM is, and the benefits that it can bring to projects and getting beyond maybe a little bit more of the 101 or the introductory level to what exactly it is. I'll just start off first, because many of our listeners, I'm certain are, I would hope, are at least familiar with what the acronym stands for and what building information management is. But could you maybe just unpack for us a little bit about what is BIM and what are some of the key benefits that it brings to a project? You've given the acronym out straight away in terms of building information modeling. Um, in relation to civil engineering, it's it's still the same thing. It's You could call it civil engineering modeling if you really wanted to. Essentially, 101 is we build detailed 3D digital models of a project. It could be a road alignment. It could be a tunnel. It could be a building. It could be a railway network. It's not really important what it is. It's that it gets represented in a, in a 3D digital space. Um, where the industry is going and why it's becoming so relevant is that people are understanding the value of the information that's included in those models. So you can get geotechnical information. You can get structural information. You can even get land use information about what different parcels of land are used for. So it's a, it's a very broad spectrum of what, what's going on. And we're seeing a lot of engineers asking lots of questions about what is it? How do I use it for my work? Do I really have to do it? What's the value? All those kind of really live questions about what's actually happening. So is it, is it, is it, it's more than just a design software, it, sort of how you've explained it here. Is it, would it be something that one could look at as an integrated project management software? Or is it? I think in GIS here, or is, it, or is it a combination of everything? Yeah, so it's becoming a combination of everything, and it's and it's there's a lot of models and a lot of crossovers. So GIS is very familiar to the civil engineers working on big, big scales, um, large land transformations, city-wide projects, infrastructure-wide projects. 
BIM is more kind of familiar to the CAD people, people who worked on individual building projects, say campus projects like schools and universities, where you've got individual properties on, on, a, on a campus. So GIS and BIM are, are kind of colliding together in the construction marketplace. The, the interesting thing about BIM is it's project-wide. So we're seeing owners who are getting great value out of some of the information that they're collecting from the projects. We're seeing architects, structure engineers, civil engineers, building services or MP engineers starting to collaborate in 3D environments by sharing, sharing models, sharing information. And then the contractors are the ones who are getting the big benefits because they're the ones who have taken to it first. They're finding out the coordination problems they're using to plan out their projects. We've got a term called 4D where we can actually link a Primavera or a Microsoft project schedule to a model, look at the construction sequencing. And now we've got this another coin term of 5D, which is where you start taking quantities from the model. So you can take out a, a concrete volume or a formwork area or a tonnage of rebar, all that kind of stuff from the models. So there's a multiple uses of the data and of the models. The challenge for the engineers is how do we set them up at the beginning of the project to be able to use them throughout the project? And then how do we actually pass the information to the contractor and ultimately how we get the information back to the owners so they can continue to maintain the asset long after we're finished doing the initial build because people are starting to learn that the construction cost might be five, six, maybe even 10, eight, 10% of the actual total life cycle cost of the project. But the owner's going to spend a lot more money using that project, using that facility and maintaining it going forward. And that's one of the big drivers, particularly in the UK, is capturing the information for the asset management and, and the upkeep of the project going forward. So, so it's not really a construction tool. It's really a, a planning tool, a design tool, a construction tool, and a life cycle management tool. So it's very, very broad. That's really interesting, especially the uh, the introduction or the incorporation of not only the cost estimating, but the uh, project management and then the life cycle component of it for asset management. And on those those components, is this sort of a, maybe not so much an innovation, but sort of an evolution of the system in the past couple years? Or is this is this just starting to, to pick up this introduction of the 4D, 5D, and then the, and the life cycle component? Okay, so the, so the 40's been around quite a long time. So we, we started doing that back when we set the company up. We've been at this since 2003. So when I started the company in 2003, I, I left a perfectly good job working for Arabs as a consulting engineer. So I set up the company in 2003, and we started doing 4D models back then by doing some basic 3D modeling and attaching some dates to it in terms of erection of concrete systems, cladding of buildings. And it started off way back then. It's become much more sophisticated now. So there's a number of software tools in the market where you can actually use the model to create a, a Gantt chart or a program. So the model can actually be used as a planning tool. So you can actually look at the building and start working out the time time cycles for floor construction, facade installations, E&M installations, and start actually developing up a construction plan. So it's, the tools have developed quite a lot in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's really brilliant from the from a scheduling standpoint. It's a, absolutely outstanding. Yeah. So as we're having this conversation talking about some of these other aspects that are starting to roll into it, you know, going into you know, 3 and 4 and 5D, very easy to see from a civil engineer and a construction perspective the importance, some of the benefits that can come from that. But as far as the, let's say, the, the owner mm -hmm. of the project, have you found through your experiences of working with them that, uh, you know, what are, what are their usual questions and maybe apprehensions that they may have about, about the use of BIM or perhaps what that might cost overall on the project, or you find it by and large, they're, they're very receptive of it because of the benefits that come from it. It's by no means given in terms of what owners think or what they think they're getting. So 
what we're seeing is this different sectors is, are approaching it in slightly different ways. So large owners of infrastructure, so railway operators, um, to a certain extent, some of the big government departments who build, own, and then operate the facilities, they tend to get a better grasp of how important the information is on their projects and, and why it's so important to control that and, and use that information. So we're seeing a lot of really good, good cases coming out of, say, Crossrail in the UK, um, MTR here in Hong Kong, even KVMRT in, in Malaysia, and even down in Singapore, we're seeing the same patterns where big owner operators are using the data for a lot more than they originally perceived of. So they're investing in, in learning about BIM, learning about the data, and they don't get it right first time. We've, we've been on a learning curve with some of these companies, particularly the MTR in Hong Kong, for over seven years, where the first projects were, what is BIM? How do we make it work? And then second project as well, how do we get the consultants to deliver these models? And then taking it further, how do we get the contractors to deliver these models? So there's a learning curve. It doesn't work straight out of the box. And, and one of the big challenges in the industry is that we're seeing a lot of engineers who are unfamiliar with the tools and unfamiliar with the processes, but they're being approached by clients going, we want you to work on these complicated projects or these fast track projects, and we want you to deliver this information in a certain format. And the engineers are going, whoa, whoa, whoa what's, what's this? How do I figure this out? Where do I find the staff? So one of the big challenges we have, and, and I think one of the big shout outs to your listeners is we need more engineers to sit down and learn these processes and, and start to experiment with how do I actually build these models? Or how do I actually use the models? Or what's the value in the model for me? The, the owner's going to get the value in the long term, but the engineers need to be able to play in that space and understand what is the owner wants, what is it the owner can't have or can have within the fee structures that we're going to sign up to. There's a lot of things to be debated within the industry. We're still at the very early stages of the impact this is going to have across not only the engineers, but the contractors, the architects, and, and ultimately the owners. So there's a couple of items that you bring up in the statement right there. The, your answer on that one was that they immediately came to my mind because I see them as maybe additional costs on the front end of being able to actually really take advantage of, of BIM. And that is, even as an owner-operator, and for some of these larger companies, it's probably easier for them to be able to absorb costs associated with the overhead of having technical experts to be able to manage the system. Because my presumption, Runa, would be that, you know, once, let's say, as an owner-operator, you receive the data and the information, you now have to have the software to be able to make use of it. And, and obviously, the experts or the technical know how to, to, you know, what to do with it from that point forward, maintenance of it, so on and so forth. Yeah. From the experiences that you've had, and then maybe even from, from what your company does in Telebuild, or do you get involved with sort of the lifecycle support for the owner-operators on after the project has been implemented and delivered, are you finding that, that you're involved in some of that after the fact, or is the owner-operator really on their own once they've once that data has been handed over to them? It's a really good question, Chris. So, so our, our business is very much focused on the design engineering side and the construction delivery side, and our industry is, is, is aligned that way. So we have a lot of really good people delivering projects and then handing them over to the owner's operation team. So our business and our team, we, we have some knowledge in the space of using kind of BIM for FM or BIM for facility management, but we haven't got a turn. We haven't managed to turn that into an ongoing business. So we're not generating any income from helping clients with the operation of their facilities. All of our work, all of the guys that work for here in Intellibuild, we're working on delivery of actual construction projects. So there's tire cranes spinning around, there's concrete trucks roaming in and out, there's ductwork being strung up. But once that job is built and hand over, we're on to the next project. Like a lot of engineers and a lot of construction professionals, it's we stay in our sandpit and we just jump from one sandpit to the next sandpit. So the big challenge is in, in, in that kind of mode of operation, we as a company are, are starting to understand some of the benefits of the digital information for owners. 
but we're really waiting for the owners to start coming up with what they want the information for. There may be a new division for your company on the road there once that all kind of plays. Yeah, itself. potentially. It's, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a, bit of, a bit of a blue space, but there, there are some very clever people working in that space. So I'll give you a simple example. We, we've done a number of projects where the client has an aspiration to capture operations information from a BIM database. So we've done a, we've done a large building recently. For, it's actually a, a technology building for a, very ma- a major property owner in Hong Kong. And they had in their contract for the main contractor, as our pals across in America call them, the GCs, that we were working for the GC. We had to deliver um, a BIM information database for the as-built condition of the building that could be used for facility management. So we started working on the project, and we went to a meeting, and I, I said to the, the engineers working for the owner, I said, we have no problem delivering the information to you in a digital format for each different component in the building, whether it's the lighting system, whether it's the air conditioning system, the fire sprinkler pump system, all those systems we can give you the digital information, but you need to tell us what information you need and you need to tell us what format it's in. And the client's engineer was, what do you mean? I said, well, take a pump. What, what information do you actually want us to capture in our database in BIM that we can then pass on to you for you to operate the building? And the facility management guys hadn't gone through that thought process. So they actually hadn't sat down and worked out from, a, from an operations point of view how they were going to digitally maintain the buildings. And that's what's getting very interesting is that a facility management uh, professional, they've got their record drawings, but when something's not working, they're going to send down some engineers and some technicians with buckets, torches, spanners, and, and some tools. The industry's got, got a long way to go before we digitize the actual operation of the space. We're struggling to digitize the construction of it, so the operations has got a long way to go before it's digitized as well. Certainly, and that brings up a, a good question in my mind, which is standardization of the data data types. Well, not only across industries, and certainly not across not only across the world, but but even within certain segments, so the civil engineering segment or MEP or E and M. From a standardization perspective on data, is there one standard, or how many competing major standards are there that an engineer needs to be aware of when they're looking at how they're going to select software? that their firm may use or in their, their consulting with a, with an owner operator. Yeah, it's a brilliant question because it's, it's one of those things you've caught me off guard on that one. I don't know what the number is. I'm familiar with a few of them. So Kobe is one that's got a lot of traction, which has started off life in, in the U S military it came out of the Navy, I think is where one of its original kind of versions started off. It's been adopted heavily in the, in the UK or the structure of Kobe is, but that's just an open format for structuring of data. The, the really interesting challenge is that we're not used to data as construction engineers, as civil engineers, as design engineers. We're used to drawing lines on pages and calling out beam sizes and slope kind of definitions and material specifications, but we're not used to managing databases and information. And I'll be the first to admit that I'm a pretty good engineer, but I'm no data specialist. I'm not, I'm not familiar how you structure data properly and everything else. So we're moving into the world of big data. And we're seeing a collision between a number of different technologies. So you're seeing like laser scanning technologies coming into the space in terms of buildings and construction sites. You're seeing a lot of virtual reality coming in. Augmented reality is now starting to come kind of a key component in the industry. And there's a lot of technology companies investing heavily into developing tools for civil engineers, for contractors, even for building owners. So the big, big players, the Googles, the big players in the U.S. market, they're looking at the construction sector, which is last time I looked at a $2.3 trillion business, and they're going, we have some serious opportunity here in, in terms of technology in the space. But for those of us who are actually working in the industry, we're, we're more used to buildings, we're more used to objects, we're more used to drawings, particularly paper drawings, 
very used to specifications and we're all fairly familiar with contracts, but data is not one of our toolkits. And I think that's going to be very interesting to see over the next five to 10 years, how, how the millennials come out as colleges, how much training they have around data and how the impact of data is going to affect construction. But it's definitely a really interesting space. I think there's, there's probably more blue space in data than there is in, in FM, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of our business. No, you're absolutely right. Is is as everything begins to tend towards data in the collection of it and the management of it, this this one I can certainly see as being one that's uh, a lot of uh, development that's still going to be needed in this area, and it's maybe may something that we have to unpack in a in a future uh, episode. We could have a long conversation around data. I can tell you that. And over the past couple of years of my professional life, I've had a couple of those, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's certainly an interesting interesting discussion topic to get into. So I want to maybe shift just a little bit on, on focus. It's still talking about development of, of BIM capabilities, but I'm going to focus this now more into a firm itself. Yeah. And if I'm a, a firm owner, engineering firm owner, and I'm looking at wanting to be able to provide a, a BIM capability in some shape, form, or fashion for future clients that I'm going to have, owner-operators, what are some of the investment costs, you know, not specific numbers, but just some of the rough orders of magnitudes that we're talking about for, a, let's say, a, a moderate-sized firm, medium-sized firm, to be able to put a, a BIM support capability into their firm. Is it something that's scalable or one-time cost, you know, in kind of the typical frame that you've seen or maybe maybe might perceive that a company would need to be able to, to, be able to develop that skill and actually get a return on investment? Yes, that's a, that's a really important thing. So we started out doing some research within our own our own office and looked at some of the numbers, and we came up with some some very kind of big chunky statistics, but kind of really interesting leads. The first thing people think about is they think, oh, I've got to buy all the software and I've got to buy all the computers, and and that's what they see as their initial outlay cost, and that's only ten percent of the problem. So what we're seeing is that you can go out and buy the software. So you can go and buy software from any of the big vendors. So Autodesk, Bentley, Trimble, they've all got platforms that you can use. But that's just 10% of the puzzle. What you've got to actually got to look at is you've got to, before you go and buy any software, you've got to sit down and figure out what is your strategy? What's the company strategy for actually developing BIM capability? It's a train that's coming down the tracks a lot faster than people realize. So, so we're in conversations now with even consulting firms here in Hong Kong who are working for a major American corporation. So you and I are sitting here, I'm, I'm using an iPhone, you've got a Mac, we're using Apple products. Apple are developing stores all over the world. That they, for example, are now looking at mandating BIM on projects. And then you've got other companies like Google is using it on some of their data centers and other people are using it on their projects. And we talked about Crossrail. We talked about the MRT. These, these companies are going to be demanding it that our engineering fraternity are competent in doing BIM. So you've got to figure out a strategy for your firm which says, okay, I've got to train up my engineers. I've got to train up my project managers. I've got to train up my technicians. And I've got to train them different ways. So people who are currently doing a lot of documentation and producing a lot of drawings, they've got to get trained in tools which are BIM tools, whether it's Civil 3D, whether it's Inroads, whether it's Revit, they've got to get trained in those tools. But then the managers and the engineers, they've got to understand how to use those models, how they've got to be able to go to a client and sit down and say, right, this is, this is how we've designed the building this way or this is how we've designed this infrastructure, this road alignment or this canal or whatever it is they're designing. They've got to be competent to be able to demonstrate that in a 3D tool and say, right, this is what your building looks like in 3D space be able to walk the clients through it, explain some of the design principles, why they've done certain things. And more importantly, they've got to be able to check the engineering to make sure that what their engineers have actually laid out in terms of pipework systems, cable tray systems are actually logical, buildable, and affordable. So they've got to be able to review the models that the senior staff got to be able to review the models. So you've got to take a view as an owner of a company, 
how do I train all the different levels of my organization to be able to engage in the BIM process? Then you can start to work out what is my standard for certain types of projects? How do I use the software to produce my standard of drawings? And then you would basically have to start building up that technical skill in-house. We talk about it in terms of 70% of the cost of investment is actually salary. It's actually paying people to do the job right. 20% of the cost of getting it up running is actually setting up company standards, company processes, and documenting those and then training those same people that are eating up 70% of your money. And 10% is really what you're spending on the actual software and hardware. But unfortunately, all the conversations we hear is, oh, this company is charging me this for the license for that software, or that company is charging me Y for that software. I say, you've, that's only 10% of your problem. You've got a much bigger challenge to face in terms of how you upskill people. And it's a really important debate because in the UK, the reason the UK government have stepped up is that the industry was basically, we're, we're not willing to spend this money unless there's a demand for it. So the government says, we want you to perform in this space. So the governments that are driving it are the government agencies. So in the US, you've got the GSA driving this, you've got the US Navy driving this. There's a number of big institutions that are driving it. It's creating a demand. So then the engineering fraternity have to say, okay, we have to get on this bandwagon. We have to do this training. The cost piece of it, I wonder if it's really easy. I think for most people to wrap their heads around, hey, I've got to pay, I've got to pay for this software. Maybe not so much to think about all those other, the, the hidden costs that are associated with all the other uh, aspects that come into it. So that's uh, Yeah, and, and it's, I, I tell you what, it's going to be a really interesting challenge. We've got, like every company, we're at a capacity. So we've got as many people as we can find working for us. We've got people we'd like to employ. We've got to find the work. But then we get these inquiries all the time going, Ronan, can you send me in a guy to do some training? And I'm going, I can't send you my best engineer because then I'm taking, enough, I'm taking him off a project where I need him to perform. Yeah. To send him into your office to give you three to four months of knowledge transfer. So it's a really interesting thing where we're, we've got to get people to start self-learning and self-performing. Kind of and then I, I do a lot of, kind of reading around the topic and listening to different people and some really good podcasts out there of what's happening in the technology space. And one of the guys I've been listening to recently talks about this freight train that's coming and the industry's not even where it's coming out of the tracks. So if anybody took a message away from today's podcast, it's we've got to go out and look at this and figure out how we train our staff because if we don't get on top of it, there's going to be other consultants who are going to get their staff trained in front of us and they're going to start winning projects right under our noses because they've got the capability and clients are getting pretty savvy about the marketing and, and the sales pitches they're starting to figure out who actually can do the work and who's actually just pretending they've got the capacity and then actually not delivering so running that, that really tees up a next question and that is, is as an owner where, where can i either myself personally go to learn more about BIM and implementation and all the different aspects that come with it, or where can I get my people to go to start getting their training, either sitting at their desk or sending them someplace? So we use a number of different resources. So we've got some internal kind of systems we train the staff on here. We do some internal learning and we do some kind of toolbox talks and lunch talks and get people trained up on different tool sets. So the first trick is to identify there's going to be, in every organization, there's going to be one guy who's going to be really enthusiastic and he's going to be, oh, I can do that and I can do this. And, and you've got to get that guy wired up to start teaching other people how to do it. Um, there's a lot of online resources available. So there's a number of companies online doing online training, online support. I can't think of the name of them off the top of my head right now. But I, can, I, can, I can let you know later on and we can maybe put in the show notes. But Absolutely. There's a couple of really good online platforms we can learn online. Um, YouTube, which is the second biggest search engine on the internet, has got a huge amount of valuable information on there in terms of how you can do things. So if you're trying to solve a particular problem, you can do it on YouTube. But there's no getting away from the people who just got to get on the tools, start using them on projects, and, and learn from some of their mistakes. It's really the only way we're going to get the whole industry skill, skilled up fast enough that we've got to get past the myth that it's too hard, too costly, too expensive. It's not that difficult. you just got to get your hands dirty. And we recommend that engineers take 
a pretty straightforward, pick the simplest project that's going through your office right now and have a couple of guys do it in BIM and see how they get on, do that, and learn from that, and then scale it up to the next big project and eventually get to a medium-sized project and eventually get enough guys who are competent. You can say, look, we can do a really serious project in this. We've got these tools figured out. We've got these processes figured out. And our guys that are working here for me, we're involved in forums. We're involved in uh, Q&A kind of things where we can answer questions. And if some of your listeners have got any particular questions, I'm sure myself or some of my team would be happy to answer some simple questions and, and engage with them that way. But it's really a case of we're, we're out to educate and share as much as we can. But there's no getting away from it. You've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to get in the tools. You've got to play with the tools. You've got to learn what's going on. And you're not going to pick it up on a two-day training course. It's You've got to get it on the job and do it on the job. I'll make sure uh, everyone that's listening here will have will have links in the show notes to uh, to these different resources, and you'll also have information on how to get in touch with uh, with Ronan, and you can go take a look at those show notes uh, after the fact here. So, you know, we're having this conversation with you, and it had shared shared this with some of the individuals in our our engineering mastermind uh, group. Had a couple of really good questions that came back, and one of them had come in, really had to do. Uh, it was a number of questions around the the concepts of outsourcing. The BIM process. So, as a as a design engineer, consulting engineer, you know, I don't have the the BIM capability in house for an owner operator, or the owner operator on the project is you know has demanded that, that BIM be involved. And so, me as the design engineer now have to look at this third party who's going to be doing the the drawings and all the other you know the contract documents and everything else associated with that. So, one of the questions uh, that came in was you know as an engineer, what does this outsourcing relationship look like? That's a relationship you build over time. There's a lot of people using CAD outsourcing. So there's a lot of companies who've got comfortable relationships with people sitting in the Philippines, sitting in India, sitting in China, delivering CAD outsourcing solutions. And that works in certain environments. We know a number of companies who are very, very good at doing this. There's one or two key tricks you've got to figure out. The only way that outsourcing works is if you've got the human connection between your staff and the outsourcing staff. And you really have to treat them like they're part of your organization. So the first mistake people think is that they can subcontract out this work and it'll come back perfect and it never does. It tends to, to dissolve into a bit of a failure. So the first thing you've got to do is you've got to start building relationships. If you want to outsource some of this work, you've got to find people who are professional communicators. You're going to have to fly your staff out to their offices for six, eight weeks, ten weeks, build a relationship, sit the guys down over dinner, have a few beers, find out who's got kids, figure out which team they support, start building a human rapport. Because outsourcing a BIM is not going to work if you're just going to mailbox it. And I'm a big advocate that the engineering firms need to do the engineering and the BIM in-house. And I, I understand that there's a shortage of skills and we've got people who have got resources and there's companies that are sitting in India with 150, 200 people that can do Revit modeling or Tecla modeling or Civil 3D modeling. But they're modeling based on information engineers have got to be able to describe. And if you've not got proper communications it's going to be rubbish in, rubbish out. So if the engineer is sending sketches out to India, which are not properly thought through, they're going to get models back, which are going to be pretty much useless. So the key advice when you start doing outsourcing is you've got to start looking at your communication, but you need to have people in your office who can go through the models, check the models that are coming back from the outsourcing, make sure they're meeting the company standards. Because ultimately, and particularly in the U.S. context where you guys have this fantastic litigation culture where everybody likes suing everybody else, You've got to make sure that your models are up to scratch before you send them out the door to one of your customers because otherwise you might find yourself paying a lot more money than you originally thought of to fix the problem. So outsourcing definitely works, but you've got to do it in a very controlled way and you've got to make sure that you've got people talking to each other every day of the week and treat them like they're part of your team. Don't treat them like they're some low-cost, cheap provider that you can basically just dump on. It's just not going to work. 
that's a really great point, and especially because that you know, quickly, and this is probably more, maybe more so for the American American listeners, but that like a lot of that question had to do around around the issues of liability for uh, for you know for this particular case that the the engineer, you know, the stamping of drawings and all the different liability issues that come with with that portion of it. You can't shirk your responsibility. You've gone off, you've done your PE, you've got the credentials, you're the one that signed the drawings. Yeah. You better make sure you're checking the work that you've outsourced to somebody else. And, and we know companies who will actually ban outsourcing. So we know clients who are saying, we don't want you outsourcing, we want you to do the work in-house. And we've got clients at the moment who are saying, not only do we want the resources to be on your payroll, we want them in our offices. So we've got a major client right now who's setting up a, a project office and they don't want the work being done globally, they want the work done, done locally in their floor space, on their servers, on their software. So you've got to have the human capital to actually bring to bear on those projects. So we're now trying to figure out how we move people from Hong Kong into places like Kuala Lumpur and Singapore to deliver projects where we have to have people on the ground at the coalface. And to be honest, from IntelliBuild's perspective, our biggest success stories are where we've had people actually on the job sites. So we, we're more and more successful when we can actually bring people to bear on a project. Because then the project managers, the project directors, the site engineers, the site surveyors, the subcontract professionals, they get to see the models in real time in the real space. It's not some kind of techie company sitting off, offshore somewhere where it's all being done in a, kind of a black box way. It's done right there under your nose. So we're big advocates of having these tools on site, easily accessible. It makes me think of a, a quote that I've I've heard kicked around in my career quite a bit, and that is, is you, you can pretend to care, but you can't pretend to be there. Yeah, very so true. Yeah, I'll maybe I'll maybe I might steal that one off you, Chris. Please do. But I mean, in this particular case, it's it's absolutely. I, I can see as we've been talking through this conversation today that, you know, that as an engineer, you you truly do need to understand what BIM is, and if you've got an owner operator that's coming to you saying we this is going to be must be a part of the contract, you absolutely need to be able to understand the basics of this, and even more beyond that. Because if you have, well, you are going to have the responsibility and the liability for the design component of it, you've got to be able to understand what is being delivered through the BIM modeling, through that entire process, because ultimately you're responsible for all of that. So um, very, very key. It, it also raises a, a big red flag as well. Is that if you've got a client who's making demands that you don't understand, you can't give them advice. But if you've got some knowledge and you've got some understanding of what you can and can't achieve in certain timeframes and in, in, in kind of digital construction effectively, you can go back to your client and say, hey, look, you're not going to be able to meet your expectations. It's, we don't have enough time. You're not giving us enough budget. We haven't got enough resources. You, your expectations are way out of whack. You've got to have the engineer willing to go back to the client saying, hey, Mr. Client, I know what you're asking for, but we haven't got that far yet. The industry's not ready for what you want. You've got to tone this down a little bit. We can get to level one or level two, but we're not going to get you anywhere near level three. And if that client doesn't take the advice and goes down, to, goes down the road and picks a, another engineering firm, they're going to drop the ball and the client's going to come back six months later going, okay, you were right. I got it all out of whack. How do we put this back on track? So we've got to get the engineers to understand what is possible and what's not possible and have them voice back to the consult their client saying, hey, you're pushing the ball too far here. We're not there yet. The industry's not ready for this. Rona, where can people go learn more about the work that you do and more about IntelliBuild and all those different aspects that you're involved in? So, well, like, like everybody in space, you can head over to IntelliBuild.com and, and we've got a kind of running a, a number of updates at the moment in terms of putting up project information and project case studies. Uh, that's obviously the, the initial go-to. Your introduction sounds pretty much like my LinkedIn profile, so you're also going to be able to find me on LinkedIn pretty, pretty easily. I'm a great believer in using LinkedIn for networking with people and making introductions to people. I've got a Twitter account that people can follow if anybody is on Twitter. It's just, uh, under, at Ronan underscore HK. It's obviously a personal account. There's obviously a, a corporate account at IntelliBuild. 
if you follow at Ronan under HK, you might find out about my sailing activities and my uh, other extracurricular activities. But if you follow at Intellibuild, you'll figure out what we're doing in the BIM space. As a company, we're actually based primarily in Hong Kong. We're, we're part of a large organization called Canam Group based in Montreal. And actually, your uh, guys interviewed one of my colleagues, Tony Bejane, back in Canada at one of these um, Canadian Society of Civil Engineer conferences a couple of weeks ago. So, so Canam have been on your show. With, uh, Tony Bejane is the current president of the Canadian Society of Civil Engineers. So he's also been on this show before. We, so we've got a team of guys in Montreal. We're working on a number of projects right now in the U.S. So we're doing a bit of work for any of your listeners in Georgia. We're working on the Atlanta, Georgia. The, we're working on the new NFL stadium down there, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. So we've got a bunch of guys doing some actual 4D construction modeling for the steelwork erection. And there's a number of other projects we're working on that for confidentiality reasons I can't tell you about in the US. But our Asian footprint, we're covering Hong Kong. We're doing a major casino development in Macau. We've got a team of guys setting up in Kuala Lumpur to deliver 10 underground stations down there for the, the second phase of their development of the metro system there. And we've got a, a couple people looking at opportunities in Singapore. So we've got a good footprint in Asia and we've got a good footprint in, in North America. And if any, any of your listeners in Europe, we haven't we haven't found a footprint there yet, but we're open to suggestions if someone wants to co- contact us and join up. We're all, always looking for new partners. <laughs> That's awesome. And this is uh, interesting that Tony Bajan, it's obviously I didn't realize that, uh, that you guys were all connected on there. So that's uh, outstanding. Yeah. Well, Bruno, I've got one final question to ask you here, and it's really, it's going to be our, our civil engineering career advice uh, question. Sure. And that is, is what's one piece of advice on BIM implication and application that you can recommend to our listeners as they go move forward in their professional development in this area? I think the simplest bit of advice is, as I kind of mentioned earlier, don't get your hands dirty. There are a number of tools available online, which are, we call them free model viewers. So you can actually download, you can start looking at models. You can look at them on a PC. You can look at them on an iPad. Microsoft are coming up with these new touchscreen devices. You can look at them, which are running Windows 10. You can look at those devices. There's software available from all the major vendors, which is free. So you can get software from Autodesk, which is Navisworks. You can get Navigator from Bentley. You can pick up a, a viewer from Graphisoft. Tecla have a viewer called Tecla BIM site. And there's a number of these platforms out there. You've got to get those tools on your PC and start playing with models. Download some sample models from the vendors. Get models off some of your projects from your colleagues. And just get used to using these tools and looking at models, being able to walk around the models. That's the starting point. And once you start to see some of those tools, then you can start to understand how do I actually build these models and how do I use these models for solving engineering problems, communicate. Well, thank you very much, Rona, for joining me today. I'm glad we were able to get this one connected. And thanks again for coming on the show. Well, thank you for the invitation, Chris. It's been great. And uh, I'm really glad we got the time to talk. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone, please remember you can find the show notes for the episode today by going to civilengineeringpodcast.com. Just look for the episode on BIM. You're going to find a bunch of uh, links to different websites. We're going to get those loaded up for you. And again, you can go to civilengineeringpodcast.com, get all that information. Engineers often ask me what exam prep materials or review courses they should use when preparing for the FE or PE exam. And hands down, I recommend PPI. Now, I personally use PPI's materials to pass my exams, and I recently had a chance to demo their civil FE and PE review courses, and it's why I feel confident recommending PPI for those of you planning to take the next step in your career. PPI is offering a special 20% discount to listeners of this podcast. Just use promo code CIVIL at ppitopass.com. Again, that's PPI, the number two, pass.com. And use promo code CIVIL for a 20% discount. And until next time, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. 
Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.